Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. Howdy. Hey, Vosh himself. Incredible. Uh, it's been known. Oh, I'll turn my cam on since we're both streaming. Amazing. And I can, I can show my chat. I am surprisingly nervous to talk to you. I, I don't actually, you have no reason to be. I don't actually remember what it is we're talking about. So you could, you could okay. hit me with anything and just completely <laughs> amazing bamboozle me. Yeah, I can bring up some really obscure topic and be like, all right, Vosh, we're debating this. Um, no, yeah, I, I watched your discussion with What I Felt Hiss. Mm -hmm. And you got into this like little spat about the nature of progressivism, um, the modern social justice movement, and how it relates sort of ideologically to the civil rights movement. And I think that what if Altist was making the point that they are different ideologically from each other. Um, so I, I'd be curious to know, maybe without having someone talking over you, what your position on that is. Yeah. So, I mean, they're different in the sense, of course, that they are comprised of different people to a different end. They're ideologically related and very similar. The reason I was trying to, because I never even got to the point I was trying to arrive at, in the video of his that I watched that I was heavily critical of, he was of the opinion that social justice is bad, but the stuff the civil rights movement and before did was good. But then he decried social justice in all the ways conservatives back in those days decried the civil rights movement. The fundamental argument that I was trying to make is that all of his criticisms of modern social justice could also be applied to earlier movements he agrees with. He just arbitrarily separates them because he doesn't want to, you know, be a vocal opponent of the civil rights movement or, or of the abolitionist movement or anything like that. Okay, interesting. I, I'm glad this is your position, because I think that means that maybe we'll actually have something to argue about on this topic. Um, I mean, I think that, like, just laying groundwork, you would probably not say that the U.S. government now is leftist, right? No. Right. And, like, to the extent that we're not leftist now, we were definitely not leftist in the 60s. Um, I think that the problem with people like what off altist is that they sort of look at the civil rights movement and they cast it as this like wholly liberal movement. Um, and the reality is that like there were a lot of left-wing strains, arguments that made up the civil rights movement. Um, people argued for civil rights for black people and gay people based on leftist terms. But I think that when you look at what actually ended up getting translated into policy, um, whether with the Civil Rights Act or how the broader public eventually came to accept the civil rights movement, it was from the liberal arguments that were made during that time, regardless of you know, what proportion they actually made up in the civil rights leaders' arguments themselves. So like, you know, you look at these old videos and pictures, people carrying signs that say like, I am a man. Um, they're, they're sort of, they're straining, I guess, in the terminology of modern progressivism for a kind of universalism, 
uh, saying that like we all ought to be equal and exist in this sort of colorblind society, which isn't making distinctions on race. And so you have that message in the civil rights movement at the same time as you have the message of like black liberation and black political identity. But I would say that what ultimately ends up in policy is like, we should, is this kind of colorblind policy um, of like, we ought not to make distinctions based on race. Does that seem like an accurate reading or is there, I'm sure you have something to add. Well, I mean, even Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, advocated for reparations and believed that preferential treatment should be given economically to black people to compensate for, um, you know, the, the many, many years of oppression and free labor. I, um, the problem is like, I agree with what you're saying generally, but this is like a problem where you'll have like a radical problem and radical solutions are proposed, but only the most milquetoast reformist solutions actually get implemented. Even mm -hmm. in the cases where like the more liberal sentiments are what make it into policy, leftists have historically been very effective in at least pushing for that, you know, the, um, socialists and anarchists that fought for, you know, union organizing back during the turn of the 20th century were not successful, tragically, in abolishing capitalism, but they were successful in driving a larger liberal majority towards stuff like securing the weekend or standard working hours or paid overtime. Um, likewise with the civil rights movement, likewise with the abolitionist movement, who had far more radical designs than just, you know, the end of slavery, some of them at least. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's always about compromise, right? If the role of leftists in history is to push uh, liberal discourse forward and towards the left solution, then that is at least something. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you bring this up, um, specifically in regards to Martin Luther King and his advocation for reparations because i think the big problem with some like right-wing types is they're they're very willing to like write off any sort of left-wing or leftist um ideological strain in the civil rights movement or in martin luther king himself martin luther king obviously a very beloved figure by so many people everyone sort of wants to claim him for themselves and so more conservative or liberal types will point to like the more liberal things that he said the more um you know, the principles that he's argued for based on that, you know, that principle for civil rights, this liberal conception of equality. And then leftists will point to like his more leftist policies as well. I think that the distinction though, is that when you look at the civil rights movement, um, it is these like liberal solutions, which made up, I think the at the time, the progressive class um, that was really in charge. So regardless of even like what the majority of people thought, the people that really had the most power, they were the ones who really gravitated towards the liberal solutions and the liberal language in that movement. And I think now it's different where you see people who are very prominent scholars. Um, some of them you've disavowed, like Ibram X. Kendi, but you, you see these like prominent racial discussions which really center the leftist solutions you know reparations and a movement away from equality and towards equity as the as the goal well i mean the professors i'm pretty sure were as radical if not more radical back in the 1960s relative to the general population than they are now and today i don't disavow ibram x kendi there are a couple of things he said okay. that, I are, that i think are dumb but um you know, I mean, certainly he's been an overall um, force for good. I don't really think there's a meaningful distinction between equality and equity, though. Um, really? I, okay. 
Yeah, because uh, I don't think equality can really exist functionally without equity. Um, if you have a massive, uh, uh, on average, differences in outcomes between populations, uh, which are a product of differences in environmental circumstances, no amount of, you know, legal neutrality uh, is going to solve that. You need to compensate for it. And I genuinely think that if you had an equal society, you would naturally see equity as its result, not between individuals, um, but between populations on average. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So I think that like um, old liberal thinkers like John Stuart Mill and John Rawls and these sorts of people, they value equality, but they also value freedom. And these beliefs, these values are not like, uh, they can't be extended each infinitely without clashing. So like on one hand, you want to give people the liberty and the freedom to generate money and to pass that on to their children. But if you want a society where everyone has like equal access to succeeding, um, allowing power and wealth to just continually concentrate in this Pareto distribution of increasing inequality is going to you know, be antithetical to that. So I think the liberal solution is to decide that there's a point in which you need to you know, tax, for example, like um, transfers of wealth from between generations or just tax wealth in general, tax income in general, and then use that to fund, you know, social services, which give people equal opportunity to succeed in the world. And so I think that like even liberal thinkers are going to agree that there is like some, uh, in order to achieve equality truly, there needs to be like some level of redistribution. I think the difference though is that when you look at modern scholars, they're really centering distribution, redistribution, especially on racial lines as the central tenet um, of the belief system. So like you look at Biden's policy of, you know, providing COVID relief specifically to like black and brown farmers, um, not even looking at need, but using race as sort of this proxy for need. You look at Ibram X. Kennedy's, his like anti-racist board proposal that you'd have a government body which like reviews laws to make sure that they actually you know intentionally advocate for um and benefit black people and brown people more than white people you know these are the kind of redistribution policies which i think you can legitimately criticize as things that are um that have really taken on a kind of motion power and consciousness in the modern progressive elite but they didn't exist in the modern progressive elite back in the 60s. Well, keep in mind that what you're talking about functionally is reparations, which Martin Luther King Jr. did advocate for. I would say people were even more favor of it back then than they are today with regards to these like race-targeted possible solutions. Nowadays, they're mostly considered to be a liberal prescription because most leftists are more interested in addressing the fundamental class imbalances that people are addressing by proxy by trying to average out wealth inequality between different racial groups. The only reason I'm not generally a huge advocate for race-based reparations is a matter of practicality. The idea of the federal government trying to divide people into white and black, you know, in like a, you get money if you are black, you know, of course, everyone's going to self-report as black if it's done by self-reporting. They'll have to do some other mechanism and, you know, it would be, a, it would be a huge, it'd be a huge pain in the ass. So it seems to me unfeasible in our current political environment, which is why I'm more interested in like economically targeted stuff. If there was a way though, to sort of finger snap some kind of 
race-based reparations policy, you know, and make that politically viable, then I think it would be a morally good thing to do. Interesting. Um, can you, I, I, I just want to know more about this. Like, what would that look like? Well, a lot of it would have to do with reinvestment. If you, one of the issues with black wealth is that it siphons off into white wealth really quickly. If you're black and you live in a poor neighborhood and you have some money, say you get a windfall, you know, everything you buy is going to go into local businesses. Uh, those local businesses pay their taxes, which go to the government. And the government is, by and large, an institution that disproportionately benefits white people insofar as its broader policies, at least. Um, though to a lesser extent now than it has in a long time. Uh, uh, if they buy anything from like a larger business, that's going to cycle back into the broader economy, which is definitely controlled mostly by white people. Um, so, so it gets siphoned out of the black community. That's why stuff like, uh, Tulsa, the Black Wall Street, were so hated by racists back in its day, because they made an active effort, the black people there, to only shop in those local black-owned communities. Of course, I don't want racial segregationism here, but... This can't really be addressed unless some effort is made to keep money cycling within the black community. Otherwise, the problem just sort of, you know, it, it, it just keeps reappearing. All the money just vanishes. Um, reinvestment, uh, you know, educational and business opportunities, infrastructural development, that kind of stuff. But that's a long term project. It's never going to be as simple as just giving people home ownership or giving people money. Okay, I changed my audio setup a little bit so your chat should be a little bit happier with that um but yeah so I, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up this idea of like siphoning wealth off because i think it's a good example of the failure of a policy that is just going to uh redistribute wealth based on race because if you just give you know um if you just give reparations if you just change the structure if you're just like giving money to black people uh the infrastructure doesn't necessarily exist for that wealth to really be retained within the black community. Um, if you give it to like a black community that is really struggling, that doesn't have a lot of, you know, black owned businesses, a lot of capital that they control, um, and they end up just going to, you know, these white businesses and spending their money working, you know, these low paying jobs for white owned businesses. Yeah, that money is going to get siphoned away. Um, and so I think that when you look at structuring policy for the long-term benefit of Black people, uh, people of color in this country, I think you have to look beyond just giving them money and really look at like what are the reasons why money isn't being accumulated in these communities and then passed on from generation to generation. And so I think that like a better policy than just like redistributing money would be really targeting that um, cultural and economic infrastructure. Oh, no, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, just just doing it through monetary, through like lump sum payments isn't sufficient. Also, it kind of feeds into the conservative um, narrative, or at least it feeds into the racist narrative. But I repeat myself um, that the uh, the lack of achievement in black communities is a product of intrinsic failings on their part. Because, you know, if, if there is some redistribution, you know, black folk at so and so many thousands of dollars, and then the money all gets burnt away in a short matter of time, people are going to look at that as evidence of financial irresponsibility. When in reality, all those people just had bills to pay, you know? They had rent to pay. They had food to buy. Like, it, 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 money doesn't automatically translate into a better economic situation if you're in the hole to begin with, you know? You need systems to ensure the production of future wealth. 
in order to, uh, to, to be meaningfully stable. Yeah, I agree. All of this is infrastructural stuff, and it's stuff Democrats don't like to fixate on or meaningfully talk about because, A, there's no way to do it without deracializing the conversation a little bit. It's not like white people wouldn't benefit from that infrastructural development in a black neighborhood. And B, it's really tough to talk about this stuff without, um, without, um, essentially like directly implicating capitalism as a, you know, as a sort of causative factor for what the situation we're in. Um, yeah. So you're bringing up the, these ideas of you just give people money, um, how it gets spent. And there's actually, there's research on this and the spending habits of different ethnicities in the United States. There's a lot of variety, um, between like white people, Asian people, Hispanic people, and within groups of, you know, Hispanic people, Asian people and whatnot. But what you actually find is that like the consumption patterns are, are very different. And so there's a study out of like University of Chicago on consumption patterns. And it turns out that like when an ethnicity uh, engages in like long-term investment, whether that be in the business or just like savings or stocks or whatever, that directly correlates to wealth uh, accumulation over generations. So like you look at Chinese immigrants into California and Hawaii, and they actually differ on this, but um, especially in like California, where they were able to save money over time and then pass that on to their children, they were able to achieve really significant gains in capital, which then allowed them to send like more children to school to get better education and whatnot. So when you have these like different spending habits between ethnicities, you really see that play out in the accumulation of generational wealth. I think that if you're just throwing money at people um, and not really paying attention to the underlying like realities of how that money gets spent, you're going to miss something. Um, and so I think that like a lot of policy, if you're really interested in helping people, needs to come with like an understanding that like people in different cultures in Appalachia versus Aspen, Colorado are going to operate differently when given money. I don't really think it's a cultural thing. I think it's a pretty standard byproduct of, um, of uh, uh, wealth and the environment that you live in. I mean, it's not as though poor people in Appalachia are phenomenal accumulators of capital over their lifetimes. If you're poor, you just don't get many opportunities to do so. Um, and obviously, if a neighborhood is unstable or unsafe, you know, the opportunities become even more, um, even more insubstantial. Uh, I, now, I, of course, I agree in this, the importance of reinvestment. You know, the best way to do this is to get people good jobs. The government can never provide in lump sum to millions of people as much money as a good job can provide to a family over the course of a lifetime. Not even close. Um, it's one of the reasons why that, you know, infrastructural investment and the, uh, uh, you know, investment in potential business opportunities is so critical. You don't want welfare to be the pro like the, 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 the mechanism through which wealth inequality is addressed. You just want the environment there to be so damn good that being poor is, is just really difficult. It's just statistically unlikely as a product of how good the opportunities are. Um, but again, it's a, it's a long-term project. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think another problem with this is um, the presence of crime. So like, if you have a lot of crime in an area, it drives out businesses. Um, and that 
you know, when you drive out businesses, you decrease the access to jobs and more people are, you know, likely to engage in crime. And so it is really this like vicious cycle in a lot of these places where you have economic opportunities driven out um, and then it gets worse and it's it's really hard to, to stop that cycle. So when you talk about like infrastructure and you know, making these communities safer. I think those are really good places to begin to really help people, you know, allow them just the ability to have a better life and to do all of the things that they're, you know, totally capable of, um, but might not necessarily have the opportunity to just because of the social environment that they found themselves in and which gets continually reinforced over time. Just to, I don't know, uh, try to bring things back a little bit to the distinction between the civil rights movement and the modern progressive movement. Do you think that like a liberal, um, someone who's not leftist, could make an argument based on their principles that the extent to which the civil rights movement ultimately achieved liberal outcomes, um, those were like the policies that got implemented by the liberal governments at the time, that was good, but the extent to which the modern progressive movement advocates for more leftist policies, for example, redistribution, and makes that a center part of their of their beliefs, that's not good. Because I think that's what someone like what if, what if Altest is saying. They're saying that like the liberal arguments made in the civil rights movement were good, um, and the more leftist positions that are advocated now are, are not good. Um, and I think that like you can rightly point out that leftist arguments existed during the civil rights movement and even had like a decent degree of prominence. But I would just say that like the way that the civil rights movement ultimately panned out, not only in policy, but in the public consciousness, was a winning out of the liberal wing of that movement. Um, and I think that's different now. And I think that's the distinction these people would draw. Well, I don't think um, redistribution is a leftist political prescription. I mean, they've been banting it back since the abolition days, 40 acres and a mule, government stipends. Uh, MLK was a firm advocate of, rep of uh, reparations, which is absolutely a form of um, wealth redistribution. I think the issue here is that the, like this happens every time where you have a, a social movement that has influence from liberal and leftist elements. The establishment picks and chooses the milk toast elements that they can get away with establishing. And then history whitewashes everything that wasn't accepted. You know, people pretend MLK wasn't considered a radical in his time. And then the next social movement comes about and people are like, oh, okay, well, the other stuff was fine because we've whitewashed all the radical elements out, but this is too far. No, it's not. Modern discourse about BLM and race relations are decidedly less radical than they were back in the 1960s. Um, what's more, there have been fewer adoptions of these policies by the establishment. The 60s did lead to the Civil Rights Movement, or sorry, the Civil Rights Act passing, after all, where we haven't gotten any giant federal legislation following any of the BLM stuff, not even those like eight points that people like Biden were comfortable with. So in every respect, I would argue that what we have right now is a less radical extrapolation of the same basic political tendencies we had in the 60s. If somebody believes that was acceptable, but this isn't, I either don't think they know what this is or they don't know what that was. Hmm. I, I think I just have to disagree with you regarding like 
the relative level of radicalization. Um, and a lot of it's just like the, the kinds of people that are elevated from these movements to prominent public consciousness. So I absolutely agree that lots of people were very radical in the 60s. Um, I think that's undoubtable. There was a lot of radical movement. But I think you have to look at the kinds of people that the broader public, you know, elevated to esteem and really accepted the ideas of. So like the idea that you'd have a commission of people to, you know, review every U.S. law and be able to strike them down if they didn't, you know, actively benefit black and brown people over white people. That's an idea that would not be accepted by the broader elite in the 60s. It's not accepted and today. Well, you have Ibram X. Kendi arguing for this, and he's getting paid tens of thousands of dollars to speak at colleges. With, His book is like included on like the main page of like the Cornell, you with, know, with student respect, library. He's one academic who was asked by an interviewer for one hyper radical position to address racial inequality. There were ideas that radical and far more bantied in the sixties. The um, the Black Panther Party literally, like the 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 Nation of Islam, were literally like at points black separatist. You know. None of these ever got accepted by the mainstream. The mainstream right now is like liberal Democrats, and liberal Democrats don't do shit. So I don't think. I'm just. I'm just saying. Like I don't. You know, MLK was the main guy of the civil rights movement, and he was radical in his time, and would be considered radical today. I just don't think people like like acknowledging how essential radical political advocacy is to even the basic milk toast liberal reforms they take for granted. Yeah. So when I say mainstream, to be clear, I'm talking about like mainstream progressives. So I agree with you that like the mainstream American, uh, even the mainstream Democrat is not on board with these ideas. Um, these people like progressives, when, you know, the progressives, I think by self-identification only make up something very small, like 6% of the U.S. population. So I'm saying that within this progressive group, uh, you have these very radical ideas which are taken, you know, as gospel. And I think that, like, you also see reparations, like we, we had this topic earlier. It's really just one part of this, um, this whole shift in the political dynamic. And so, like, I think that you see in the 60s, um, there's, and before, there's really this emphasis on, like, appealing to this liberal perception of like, we are just men like anyone else. Um, you know, I'm a man who like happens to be black would be like, you know, one of the ways you appeal to the liberal milieu at the time. But now I think that you see this insistence on a kind of political blackness or, you know, I experienced this, a political transness by which to take on the identity of a black man or a trans person means being also willing to engage in like a kind of political activism for that group. Um, and so this is why like I had this discussion with I think Joe Lewis a while ago and he told uh, an Asian man on a panel that he was white uh, and he meant it in this like political way that like you were politically white. Um, and I think that you know, that evolution in academia, this view of political blackness, whiteness, transness, et cetera. I think that would be another example of a radicalization of politics. And it, that's something that, that you see happening. 
Um, the let's concept see, I can of pull political up. blackness and political whiteness predates the 1960s, but back then there were people in like um, the Nation of Islam or like Black Panther Party were absolutely calling black people who sided with like white majorities all sorts of funny things. Um, like right now, like with respect, it seems like you're just citing stuff that like gets the outrage on social media these days. I guarantee you like more was happening back then. Like back then, ideas that are today not even whispered in halls of power were being broadly discussed back then. Whether it's black separatism or like full on like like a militia organization or we're talking about like um like the, the idea of like radical militant action, stuff like that. I mean, there were like political candidates who were like signaling support to issues like this. They're mainstream voices. Even the most milk toast, I mean, like in retrospect, MLK, like he wrote pretty radical shit down um, about how like white people are failing their country and black people for not um, better educating themselves on these issues and how they should be expected to. Uh, essentially like placing a, a, an implicit burden of guilt on white people who do not sufficiently educate themselves in the plight of black people. I really don't think the modern movement is any more radical. The mainstream stuff from uh, BLM has been like, hands up, don't shoot, and like, I can't breathe. Like just very basic liberal, please don't kill me police officer sentiments. Very moderate stuff. So, yeah, I mean... <sighs> I always feel like sort of like a nerd with this stuff because I, I hate like throwing out a ton of names. But like when I talk about political blackness, I think that I can acknowledge that like all of these ideas are going to have ideological origins that date back further. Um, but like, I think there's this turning point with Kimberly Crenshaw in her publishing of Mapping the Margins. And that's something that doesn't happen until the 90s. Um, and when you have these like, groups of academic acad academics um gathering together in these conferences to publish essays like this it isn't until you know 30 years after the 1960s and so i agree with you and i'm like i i will absolutely acknowledge that like there were ideas that were radical um and that were being you know thrown about but when you really start seeing these things explode in terms of literature being published that is something that i'm looking at happening later um and so like mapping the margins is one example of this and we've seen other examples as far as all the all the academics that like conservatives typically cite um, when it comes to racial issues but did this not happen in the 60s i'm more familiar with radical feminist literature of the 60s a la andrea dworkin but like they were publishing some wild shit back then. This is just like, with respect, I feel like this is like people saying music sucks today. Listen to how it was back in like the 30s or 40s or something. But that's because over the course of time, we've only remembered the good shit. Like all the bad stuff has faded into the background. The tracks haven't been preserved. The, the you know, the, the, the artists haven't been like sanctified in history. So we only remember the good stuff. And nowadays we have to deal with everything all at once. So we see and feel all of that and it feels like things are worse. But in reality, we're just not getting the filter of history. We've been kept from the filter of history today politically, but we feel it in the 60s. Back in the 1960s, um, the arguments applied to BLM today, I think, would have been even more applicable back then. They were more militant and radical. God bless them. 
than a lot of what we see today. We just don't remember this because when we hear about the civil rights movement, we just hear about like, yeah, MLK did some like marches on Washington. He believed everyone should be equal. And then the government went, ah, and like passed the law. But of course, that's not what happened. It was years of like really heated conflict. Um, like troops were brought in, like the Little Rock Nine desegregation stuff. Like it was a giant, giant, giant thing, uh, which led, I think, to more meaningful political discourse than anything we see today. Um, now, I don't know. I honestly think even more radical proposals that come out of progressives today with regards to race would have been considered like milk toast by MLK back in the 1960s. Like he would look at where we are today and be kind of disgusted that not only did we not achieve what he wanted, we're still debating over stuff that's less significant than what he would have wanted. I, I mean, again, I'm like sort of surprised by this take. Is there like an example of a progressive policy now um, or like a, a quote unquote radical policy now that you think would specifically be looked at as like milk toast back in the sixties? Um, just pretty, so I can get a handle for you. Pretty much mentioned. all the discourse we have right now on reparations is super, super, super cut down. I haven't seen anything like any politicians meaningfully backing anything that would look like a, a reparations policy that would even come close to addressing like the wealth inequality between black and white people. Okay. Interesting. Um, there's this other thing that you said about all of this bad stuff has faded into the background. Um, and, you know, the idea that we don't really remember the radical stuff that happened in the 60s, the radical ideas that happened in the 60s. Is that something that you would necessarily say is bad, the radical ideas that were, you know, thrown about in the 60s? Or do you say those radical ideas were good and continue to be good today? Well, I love the radical ideas. I mean, the Civil Rights Act didn't really fix anything. Um, obviously, it ended legal discrimination in the way that we perceive it in a liberal framework. But um, in terms of like uh, redlining outcomes or like average household wealth, black and white people are still in like incredibly disparate positions. In some cases, they're about equal to where they were back then, which is insane. So clearly, like this, this was you know milk toast. Uh, we could have gone far farther. It's like um, two people racing, one guy gets stabbed in the back, and then the referee declares that it's no longer legal to stab people in the back, and then they continue racing. We didn't fix anything. I mean, not in a meaningful sense. All right. So do you think that like, from a liberal position, you could look at the radical ideas, and you could say that in the civil rights movement in the 1960s um, and you know earlier, the arguments made for change that ultimately got implemented were liberal ones, which you would say weren't far enough. Um, but the arguments that are being made now for change are, you know, too radical. And back then they were too radical. Because I think this is also maybe something that what a faultist would say. Well, I would expect most liberals today to disagree with a ton of stuff that the civil rights organizers were fighting for back in the 60s and what they're doing today because i think liberals are, are moderate you know overwhelmingly if you look through history the good things that we take for granted were done by radicals or at least portions of what they wanted when we're talking about um you know uh, uh the abolition radicals reconstruction was considered radical and then ended by a southern supporter thanks lincoln um you know, uh, the, the suffragette movement back in the um, early 20th century, they were absolutely considered radical back in their day. 
civil rights movement, the uh, feminist movement, 1980s, gay people, anti-AIDS discrimination, like all that, every time radicals were like front and center in all of this, you know? And, you know, sometimes things change, sometimes they don't. Usually they change only a little. I always wish they would have changed more. But if we want good things to continue to happen in the future, even if you don't want all the radical prescriptions, you have to support the radicals because without them, nothing can get done. They're the engine. They push forward the discourse. Interesting. Um, do you believe that you can look at the radical arguments made in the 60s and disagree with them, but agree with the liberal arguments made in the 60s? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you can if you want to. I would disagree with that, though. Well, there were some radical arguments back then I disagree with. I don't agree with all of them, but I do think there were some in there that were more valuable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that like when a lot of people look back at the 1960s, um, I think what they see is that there are these liberal positions which became like the dominant positions. Um, the liberal wing like won out in that movement. And I think what they do now is they look at the liberal and the progressive wings for modern social justice. And they say in modern social justice, you know, what we have now, the progressive wing is really driving the ship. And the liberal wing is, you know, has moved more and more to their positions. And I think this is, as far as I know, this is borne out in data. When you look at like political polarization, the, the Democrats have moved left specifically on social issues like these. Well, keep in mind, MLK was the progressive back then. It's not like MLK was beloved by well, the liberal compared, establishment. Compared to like, for example, like Malcolm X, right? Or other radicals. So you had these like people who are much more radical. And I'm than moderate compared to some people, you know? Right. Uh, and I, that's what I'm saying is that the, like during the civil rights movement, there was like a more radical wing than Martin Luther King, even though he was considered a progressive, good. you know, his more moderated version uh, was what won out as far as what I'm, people backed. I'm more radical than Ibram X. Kendi. So there's always a spectrum there. But MLK was a progressive in his day. It's not as though he was uncontroversially accepted by the liberal establishment. You said it yourself, didn't you? Um, he, his values, some of them at least, became accepted as the liberal norm um, only after they were implemented. That's always how it's been. Abolition was a radical position itself, and it became a liberal norm. Uh, the idea of a five-day work week or of paid overtime or of abolishing child labor, all were considered radical, socialist, anarchist, pro-union positions until they were passed, and then they became normal. I think the same would happen with almost any progressive policy people are trying to push for today. Even people like Ibram X. Kendi, you know, they push the line forward a bit, uh, people bitch and moan, and 50 years from now, people will look back and go, oh, of course they were in the right, but this new thing, you know, and then, and then the whole thing begins again and again. Um, but I defy the cycle because I want more progressive than all these iterations, you know, it was never far enough for me, so. Um, but yeah, I do think people, people tend to defer to that line of thinking. No, I mean... Yeah, I, I agree that like, I, I also think that radical norms eventually become normal or more standard. Like you can look at like, you know, in 2008 when Obama's running for office and he's against gay marriage. And now the idea that like, especially a Democrat would be against gay marriage seems really fringe. Um, and like even conservatives are, you know, are not going to like openly say that they're against gay marriage unless they're in a place that's like, 
you know, especially conservative. So I, I agree that like radical norms eventually become normal. And I think, you know, when you look at, for example, a conservative today that is pro-gay marriage, right? If you throw them back into 2008, um, you know, 1970, 1960, they're going to look, at least on gay marriage, um, like a very, very progressive person. And so, you know, when we look at like the political positions of modern progressives, I think I would say that like the same trend, you know, continues on a lot of these, on a lot of these social issues. Um, and that would be like an argument in favor of understanding histories changing and positions becoming, you know, more progressive over time. We're backsliding though, at the moment at least. Um, you know, even Trump had to virtue signal for the LGBTs when he was running, but nowadays it's pretty, they're going back to being very openly anti, you know, queer in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the gay marriage is probably up on the chopping block next for the Supreme Court, so. Uh, we'll we'll have fun with that one when it comes around, I suppose. Do you really, do you think that, because um, I know that Alito in his brief said that abortion was unique from other rulings that dealt with privacy. Do you think that like, they're also going to go back on those implied rights um, for, for example, like uh, contraception or gay marriage or whatever? Yeah, sure. They hate gay people and women. Why not? So, Do you think there's like a, a legal argument for that? I don't really believe in like the concept of legal interpretations of the Constitution. It's no coincidence that conservative judge appointees rule in favor of conservative political positions. Or for instance, that Roe v. Wade has stood strong for 50 years and then right when conservatives are ramping up their anti-LGBT rhetoric and like trying to consolidate power on a state level, you, you, then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, actually Roe v. Wade's like unconstitutional or whatever. Um, I don't really believe in it, you know. There there are some issues that are pretty clear and cut, you know. I mean, if you're, like, housing troops quartered in your home or some shit, you know, you what is that, the Fourth Amendment? You know, there's obvious stuff. But in terms of, like, whether or not there's a legal argument, well, depending on how you twist the arm, there's always a legal argument. Um, it wasn't a necessary one to make. Yeah, I mean, I but think that at the very least, the legal argument made in Alito's ruling, I'm not convinced would apply to gay marriage or other rights because he does you know bring up reasons why he believes that it's you know specifically unique from those rights I, but i think like also ruth bader ginsburg criticized roe v wade um you know very very heavily she you know publicly said that it wasn't done well and that she wished that it was argued in a different way because the way that they argued it wasn't very strong but ultimately she fell on the side of stare decisis and maintaining the courts. So, I mean, I do think that like, when you see the court go back on something, whatever that policy is, it does indicate a willingness to like um, question stare decisis and previous rulings. But I'm also, I don't know, I think it's maybe a little bit catastrophizing to say that they're going to go back on these other rights just because people in said the that about, they didn't have the logic for it. People said that about, um, whether or not they go back in Roe v. Wade, they said that was catastrophizing. No, the Republican Party is openly anti-gay. I'm pretty sure every single state Republican Party, all of them, are anti-gay marriage and have revoking the legality of gay marriage as part of their state proposals, and that it's broadly held at basically every federal like official. 
Um, also, didn't he literally like name o Obertfell versus Hodges, or like there was something about that in the the case that they were looking at? Um, like he said it would fall under the same criticism or something. I like there's no reason to believe they wouldn't just get rid of gay marriage. Like they're literally screaming it at the top of their lungs. So he does bring up a lot of these other cases that dealt with privacy. Um, and there's a question about like what rights that weren't explicitly enumerated in the constitution can be implied or inferred from the amendments. And I believe Alito's argument is that these implied rights uh, to privacy are one layer of abstraction away from the amendments, but abortion deals with something unique, which is potential life, which these other rulings didn't deal with. And so the question of potential life is really what makes Roe v. Wade unique from those other rulings. Now, I think that if you're going to argue that other rulings will be gone back on, um, Alita would have to come up with another reasoning for why that happens, or you know, whoever writes the, the majority opinion Thank would you, have to right? come up with a reason. Well, sure. Okay. They can just do that then. Yeah. I don't really care what they're like. They can come up with any legal justification they want. The Supreme Court has made stupid rulings all the time. There's a whole podcast on it. Like some of these rulings are just blatant shows of partisan like political maneuvering. Uh, in fact, I would say that's what most of them are uh, in most cases. Um, but it's a 6-3 court, you know. Of course they're going to achieve conservative goals. There's no reason to believe they won't. They'll probably go quite a bit farther than gay marriage as well. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I guess we'll see. Because, like, I don't think that the ruling, the logic within the Alito uh, opinion supports going back on gay marriage. But, you know, it's possible that they come up with another reason uh, that we just haven't, you know, seen in this specific draft. So... Yeah, um, maybe that's possible. Well, I mean, the Obersfell was only 5v4. I mean, that was back, like, it was, it, they, just seven years ago, they only passed marriage equality with a one-vote lead, so they would just probably go with whatever the dissenting opinion was from that ruling, and just be like, oh yeah, well, this was correct. Good luck. <laughs> um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. If I can agree with you a little bit, I do think it's a little bit scary that they're, you know, going back on something with such strong precedent for it. Because um, it does imply that, like, the court is going to become more political if it's willing to, you know, question these these previous rulings. So, you know, as far as, like, stare decisis goes, I, I do think that it's, like, maybe the strongest reason um, why you should maybe be a little bit concerned about this specific ruling um and this this position by the court oh well i mean this the revocation of roe v wade is a tragedy in and of itself yeah i'm pretty sure alito has explicitly stated he believes same-sex marriage should be left up to the states um in, in the past yeah it was it was clarence thomas and alito so um you know at the very least they have that support it, yeah it's if they're at the end of the day, they're stooges of the Republican Party, as are all members of the Republican Party. Everyone falls in line when they need to. Um, they'll do what they're told, and if it's politically expedient to get rid of gay marriage, they'll do that too. They have the power to. I guess we'll definitely see um, worker productivity. Did you get a very long message from a different trans girl explaining worker productivity? Because one of my friends said that she was like messaging you about it. 
Um, I don't know if I can distinguish by trans girl because basically everyone in my community is one, but I did get a very long message on worker productivity, yes. Okay, yeah. I, I argued with her a little bit about that going back and forth. Um, I think that a lot of the literature does suggest that worker productivity is very closely tied with compensation. But, you know, the argument that we had, I, I believe that it, it varies from industry to industry um, and where exactly that worker productivity is coming from. For example, if you have like automation in McDonald's and it allows you to produce a lot more burgers faster, um, a lot of that like gains in productivity the, the benefit from that, the compensation is going to go to the developers of those machines and not necessarily the frontline workers. And so that worker will get a lot more productive, but, you know, you won't necessarily see um, that borne out in higher wages for them. Yeah, I agree. I think I could have done a better job explaining what my point was with what if alt hist, but that conversation was a bit of a shit show. So it, you know, got a little bit mussied up. But my my basic argument was that Productivity is a is a very relative measure when we're talking about like the worth of the goods produced, in large part because the worth of goods can be determined by a number of extrinsic factors that don't necessarily relate to the level of development within a given like system. Um, so, for example, like uh, things like regional exclusivity, things like um, local labor laws or the local um, minimum wage. Things like the uh, uh, you know trade relations with other countries or exploitative business deals like made for the IMF or the World Bank, these can all affect the perceived value of the production of a given factory or firm um, in ways that don't actually relate at all to its efficiency in, in terms of its actual production. You know, um, when we take a look at like total resources extracted from different parts of the world, um, there is no, say for example, there's only one cobalt mine in all the world, right? Now that's not true, of course, but you know, say that was the case and it's somewhere in Sudan and I don't know, folks, there ain't going to get paid too much. Now the world needs cobalt and no matter how efficiently that cobalt mine mines cobalt, I imagine given the fact that it's the only mine, there would probably be Western businesses making sure they have the highest end technology in doing so. The people who work there ain't going to get paid that much. And technically, if you compare them to the production efficiency of the rest of the world, they're the most efficient producer of cobalt. No one else even comes close. They're the only game in town. But they don't get paid very much for their labor. And the reason for that is because even though in a comparative sense, their efficiency, their productivity is unrivaled in that field, they are in Sudan. And uh, as that's an extrinsic factor unrelated to their efficiency, their productivity in any meaningful sense, they will get paid very little, possibly nothing, um, even if a firm of the same comparative efficiency could have workers who are paid a tremendous amount if it was in Alaska or, you know, something like that. You know what I mean? That's the only point I was trying to illustrate. There are so many, like, other things that go into what people are paid, if they're paid their worth, so to speak, than just the productive efficiency of a firm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. Cause like studies on worker productivity, um, they rely on like assumptions that there is at least some semblance of like free market competition um, and operating markets here. So like, if you go back to like the feudal system, um, the productivity of workers is like maybe very decoupled from their actual wages. Or if you look at like slavery, uh, where people are literally being paid nothing, um, 
And so like, yeah, or like an authoritarian country that is able to just like use guns to be like, listen, you guys are going to work. And like, you're not allowed to leave this land. This is the only job offering that you have, even if you are going to get paid for it. You don't really have an option like not to take it because this is the one thing that our government's going to allow you to do by cooperating you with, just got- uh, you know, whatever foreign foreign company is paying us to have access to our labor capital. Yeah, I, I think that like, in sort of these extreme examples where the system is like, um, you know, a very unique and very especially exploitative, there's there's decoupling from worker productivity. I think that like, if you're going to argue with more economically minded people about this, of which, frankly, I'm not one of these people because like super good in economics. I think the point, yeah, (laughs) I think the point that they would make is that like these extreme, um, systems tend not to be like very sustainable in the long term so like if you look at like bangladesh and like sweatshops um even if you're paying like very exploitative wages if you are paying some wages that allow people to save money and eventually you know send their children to college and you know have transfer of wealth between generations and accumulation of wealth what ends up happening is people are more able eventually to advocate for higher wages and to develop skills that allow them to build industries within their countries. And so I, I think that like the more economically minded people would point out that it's hard to keep like this very exploitative system going on for long, unless you have like total control of like violence um, and the ability to like really exert force uh, or like prevent people from moving between industries or control their you know their wealth entirely that sort of thing. Yeah, well, it's a I mean it's a snowball rolling down a hill situation, you know. Um, a lot of people use like productivity between countries as a measurement of like uh, entrepreneurship or like industry minded behavior, but you know the United States is always going to be more economically productive in any measurable sense than countries with lower levels of development because. Obviously, they don't have the development necessary to produce the stuff that allows them to develop faster. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it feeds into itself. But people use it like a prescriptive thing, you know, like um, when people say stuff like, well, the reason people in America are wealthier is because than people in Africa is because they're more productive. It's a very reductive statement to make. There are a lot of reasons and explanations for that, of course. There are people who have no productive value at all, but are enormously wealthy through inheritance. Yeah, it's not the only factor, but also there's an inherent, like, um, or there's an implied level of, of sort of prescriptive judgment there, you know, like, well, why is America on top? Well, I guess they're just more productive, you know, even though productivity in an economic sense is self-referential, productivity begets productivity. In a colloquial sense, what people tend to talk about when they say productivity is like workmanship, you know, efficiency, drive, entrepreneurship. And I don't think there's any more or less drive or entrepreneurship in Africa than there is in Europe, you know? Probably, honestly, more of it in Europe, or sorry, in more of it in Africa and more of a hard workmanship vibe going on in Africa as well because um, they're more at threat of death and they don't have robust welfare states. There might actually be a greater degree of desperate individual, uh, you know, striving for attainment over there, the grind set, if it were, than, than what you might get from the average European. So the solution, of course, is reinvestiture. You know, it's investment, development. Um, but sometimes people act like the reason they don't have that development is because they're lacking something. That bothers me. Yeah, I, 
I definitely think that like colloquially, the way that people use productivity is just to sort of mean like how hardworking someone is. And that's definitely not what economists mean when they use this word, which is like, it, it, it's frustrating to talk about because it, it definitely trips people up in ways that are frustrating. Because like, if you look at someone who is mining diamonds um, in the Congo, they're clearly working extremely hard and to great threat to get to great threat to their own personal health. Um, and yet like the productivity measurements for diamonds, it turns out that like the value of diamonds is very much determined by things like marketing that happened in the United States. So like when some marketing team in the United States is able to convince Americans that they want to buy diamonds um, and therefore translate into millions of sales, their work gets you know, recorded as like very productive because it ends up, you know, with a lot of uh, consumption basically. And the work of people mining diamonds in the Congo ends up getting recorded as not productive because when you look at like the total value of the diamonds, 90% of it is coming from the marketing team. And so like, that would be an example of how productivity in the econ sense is like very different from actually like working hard or you know any sort of like moral prescription because like clearly these these people in the Congo are working very hard and you know the marketing people might just like come up with how to do this in an evening yeah no i agree it's just from an economic perspective the statement people in this country make less money than people in this country because they're less productive is like tautological because in that case, wages are going to relate to like the internal economic activity, which relates directly to the productivity. It's basically, it's basically like saying, um, well, this country has more wealth because it has a higher GDP. It's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, they're, they're right there. Those numbers are very directly connected. Um, but there's obviously other stuff. You could take the same factory with the same workers, you know, in America and move it on over to Mexico, and they could produce stuff at the same rate, and of course those people would be paid less. You know, obviously more goes into this than just um, than just efficiency. Um, like, uh, that's one of the reasons why people's wages vary based on the minimum wage set in different states. If everything was determined exclusively by efficiency or, or productivity, then that wouldn't be the case. But, oh God, I'm remembering when um, What If Alt History made the claim that baristas who work for Starbucks get paid more if they serve more customers per hour. That was a good, that was a good one. Um, I, anyway, anyway, I'm rambling at this point, but yeah, that was a very, very insular moment there. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing with like Starbucks baristas is that their productivity is highly determined by the capital that they work with. So like the ability of like Starbucks to hire programmers and engineers to build machines, which allow Starbucks baristas to make coffees. That's really like the bulk of how Starbucks baristas managed to make um, different drinks at different rates. And so like the productivity of a Starbucks barista is mostly determined by capital investment that is outside of their control. And therefore, you know, this is like a good reason, as well as like the fact that it's um, a fairly low skill job. These are like the the kind of economic reasons why their individual productivity might not translate into wages. If I can just like push back a little bit, I would say that like uh, the longer that you work at Starbucks, like and your ability to retain that job is dependent on your ability to produce coffees at a certain you know adequate rate or a high rate, and like. That's also correlated with like 
increasing wages whenever you get your performance reviews. So like there is correlation between how many, um, you know, macchiatos you can make per hour and your wages at Starbucks. It's just the correlation is not necessary. I don't know the numbers. I'm guessing it's not super strong because that portion of productivity only accounts for like a small portion of um, how fast they're able to make the drinks and the rest of it is accounted for by capital. Well, people people get raises in most of these service joints by seniority. And even then they're incredibly small, but I don't think there's any correlation to their level of skill. They might get promoted to like front end or back end manager, like closing shift lead, what you know, something like that. And that might include a pay raise. I, I think that would depend on the place, but it, it could. Um, though the amount of extra responsibility you're dealing with on account of that is much greater than the amount of extra pay you're going to be getting as well. Um, I don't think the, the correlation I, I think is, is, is quite weak as well, especially since, you know, the people who are getting paid the most, um, there, the manager, uh, oftentimes do, do quite a bit less in terms of like day-to-day -day work. That depends on the location. Sometimes managers do quite a lot. Um, yeah, I just, I don't think there's a meaningful correlation there. Um, I think that if you take a look at society as an aggregate, um, the harder people work, the less they tend to get paid. Um, because usually it's poor people who have to work multiple jobs, stack up eight to 10 to 12 hours to work while going to college, stuff like that. They, the people who make a lot of money don't have to work through their entire lives. And you have exceptions, of course. There are like Sigma grindset lawyers who like sleep underneath their desk. You know, of course there are exceptions. It's not a total thing, just an aggregate average. But that's how hard you work to wages, not productivity to wages. But in terms of productivity, I mean, how do you abstract some of this stuff? What's the productivity of a CEO? Um, they don't produce anything. Um, sometimes they don't even really make decisions. They just operate as like a front end. Um, it's difficult to economically calculate stuff like this uh, in any me meaningful sense, because a lot of these econ evaluations are just like, how many widgets do you make per hour? You know, they're very cut down, very not service economy oriented. Um, good for like, nationwide aggregates, not very good at individual person-to-person -person determiners of predicted income. I mean, so like on the CEO level, it's hard to measure because there's not a lot of CEOs and their work tends to be very different. But the way that you would measure it is like how much value they're adding to the company. When you say something that like, you know, the hardest working people um, tend to be like, earning very little. Um, I think that's sort of true. And the reason why it's true is because like productivity is basically how much value you can, you can create, um, per hour work. There are other ways to measure it, but like per hour work is the typical one. And if you're able to produce a ton of value per hour of work, then yeah, like the, the reality is you probably don't need to work that much. And so the more productive you are, you know, the more you can get away with not working for super long. Um, in regards to like CEOs, yeah, I mean, it varies quite a lot because different CEOs have different positions in the company, like different responsibilities and different um, like ownership of the company. So like in theory, the way that it would work is like a board of directors and your views and like hires on a CEO and they're willing to pay that CEO a certain amount of money, um, you know, up to potentially the value they create for the company. Um, and so you would probably measure it that way at, you know, how much, how much they actually receive. 
um, is probably a fairly good metric, especially for CEOs of how productive they are. But that's absolutely not true. There's no correlation at all between the compensation a CEO gets and their productivity in the economic sense we're referring to. CEOs, they, even if a company devalues over a given length of time, they still make their pay. Now, a devaluing a company through your leadership is a negative contribution. Technically, they're being less productive than the lowest barista underneath them, and they still get paid many, many millions, you know? The tie that a CEO gets to their productivity is in the stock options they receive um, increasing in value, you know, what they're paid in. And often CEOs are paid largely in stock options, but the stock value of a company also isn't the same as productivity. When we talk about productivity, we're talking about the actual generated value to others. Tesla has a higher corporate value on the stock market than a bunch of other car companies, but it produces significantly less because the stock market is really, really hype generated. So I, the, the issue I have here is I, I just don't think there's like any correlation at all. I think it's very, very spurious. Um, how hard people work, how productive they are, these are really, really hard to pin down um, between different fields, uh, at a point, I don't think there's any use, any relevance to this mode of analysis beyond like a really general, like firm or nationwide analysis. When you try to apply it to individuals, you know, it, I think it falls apart. America on average is more productive than Mexico. And we do have, and we do make on average more money. But if you get down to the individual, you know, members of both countries, I think you'll find enough variance that it gets really blurry. So again, it depends on the CEO and what exactly their compensation framework is. So I think in theory, it's possible for a CEO to just take higher and higher compensation rates year after year, even as their company value plummets, right? And they make less money. But if they keep doing that, like eventually the company is going to go bankrupt. So, and eventually the board will fire them. So again, it's like possible that like a CEO, it's totally possible that a CEO controls majority of the stocks and they just like set all of the policies unilaterally and they've just decided to like plunder whatever they can from a company as they run it into the ground what if they just do a bad job though so if they do a bad job again you'd expect the board to fire them because the board wants to make money they're profit motivated and if a ceo is not returning profits to them they're not going to like that but they would still make tens of millions usually there's a golden parachute even after a few years a ceo goes down which means they would have received tens of millions of dollars for contributing negative perceived productivity, whereas at least the lowest minimum wage earning barista underneath them would have contributed some positive. Yeah, but the board doesn't want that to happen. Well, like they sure, want to get their money. So like, yeah, you can have happens or like you can also pay a barista like a thousand times what you would otherwise and like lose value on them or you could do this with like anyone in the company um where you just like pay them much more than the value they produce but it'd be like a bad deal the company doesn't want to do this the board is not incentivized to do this and so you'd expect like on aggregate them to avoid situations where the ceo just like takes money from them and doesn't deliver value back to the company well it, that's common CEOs get paid a lot and many businesses go defunct. It happens every year. We hear stories of businesses going down or losing money in a quarter. Their CEOs continue to make lots of money. It doesn't seem like there's any relationship at all between them making a metric fuck ton of money and their productivity in an economic sense. Again, assuming you can even extrapolate productivity to refer to 
uh, a corporation's evaluation on in the stock market because even then I, f I think that's a very speculative uh, relationship between those two factors. Um, but I just don't think there's a relationship. Whether or not the company goes up or down, the CEO makes a hell of a lot more money than the people beneath them. If it goes down, maybe they don't stay in that position for as long, but they still made millions while contributing negative productivity. Um, it's just a deeply unfair system, but we have to recognize it's unfair to fix it. I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm inclined to believe that these people are very profit-driven and want to generate like as much money as they can. And so they're willing to like, they're they're not going to want to take like these sort of bad deals. But it happens um, anyway. I, I do agree that like CEOs fail and companies fail. And like sometimes you can hire someone on with the promise that they're going to generate all of this value and make a bad call ultimately. And they don't generate that value. The board isn't happy. The CEO eventually, you know, when the company fails is no longer making that money. I just think that like, given the option, if these people could choose, you know, they could see the future, they would choose to make more money. Um, well, I'm not denying, I'm not denying that. I'm only saying, I don't think there's a strong relationship between economic productivity and wages. If they continue to make their wages millions, uh, while being unproductive, contributing negative productivity, the intentions or will of the stock, uh, of the shareholders isn't really relevant to the, you know, Gosh, why would a board like, they don't want that to happen. Though. Wait, I'm not saying they want it to happen. Only that it does happen. It, ha okay, it, it happens. Does happen. And when it happens, they still make a lot of money doing it. So there's not a strong relationship between their productivity and the wages they receive. But you agree that the incentives are for them to create value. Like everyone wants the CEO to create value. They don't want them to lose value for the company, right? Yeah, but what they want is irrelevant. We're talking about the relationship between productivity and wages. If there was a strong relationship, CEOs that contribute negative productivity should receive negative wages, or at the very least, nothing. But of course, it doesn't work that way, because life doesn't work that way. Productivity doesn't chart onto wages, or vice versa. At least not at an individual level. At a broad aggregate, it seems like a, like a decent determiner, as long as by productivity we're using the economic measure and not the colloquial measure because I think that people are just as hardworking all over the world, uh, oh. more or less. I, I also think that you can find lots of individual examples of productivity and compensation not mapping onto each other. But it seems like you agree that on aggregate, this is true in the economic sense. So do you think it's just like not true for CEOs, but is true for other employees or? I think it's true if you look at a country, like the difference between country to country. But if you take a look at the difference between um, like, uh, you know, different individual workers or even maybe even different firms within a country, things kind of fall apart. Oh, between states as well, right? Seattle has a $15 minimum wage. Broader Washington doesn't. Idaho has a lower minimum wage than Washington, I think. So two workers doing the same shit in Starbucks in Seattle and in Idaho can get paid very, very different amounts with no difference in productivity um, on average. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think it really falls apart when you get any more specific than nationwide. So the reason why, I don't know, I'm not the biggest fan of this like state-by-state -state comparison is just because there's quite big differences in like the cost of living between states. And so like, Oftentimes you'll look at like a city um, 
where you have a high minimum wage, so you like $15 minimum wage. And then you compare that to somewhere like Missouri or Alabama in the rural countryside. And you're like, wow, these baristas are making a lot less money. Um, and like the reason why they're making less money is because like the coffees that they're selling are also going to be lower cost. Um, and the way that productivity measured is measured is like relative to those areas. Um, I think that like you're you're right if you're saying that like government policy can change how people are compensated in a way that the market wouldn't necessarily um, result in. Like that can happen, but I think that we should like be careful not to like exaggerate this effect too much when we compare state by With state. With respect, that ain't true at all. There are plenty of fast food places that charge the same amount no matter what state you're in or the minimum wage. The wages change though, and so the the traffic can as well. You can have a, a you know like um, a red state city uh, with a low minimum wage, getting very high traffic, selling burgers at the same price as an area in a blue state with a higher minimum wage that's rural um, and has basically no traffic. I don't think these factors track on at all. Now, when you say cost of living is lower, that I agree with, but that's not productivity. That's a different economic force. Um, what they think they can get away with paying people based on the relative cost of living there. Though, of course, I don't think it's enough, you know, not in any minimum wage place, but um, but yeah, that's that's a different factor. If, if the statement were to say, I think that wages will correlate uh, with the cost of living in an area, then I agree on a nationwide level. I, I would also agree that's a very strong um, determining factor. Yeah, I just think that like sometimes it's difficult to compare state by state because there's a lot of factors that go into wages. Um, and you can look at like wages in a specific state and the reason why they might be like higher or lower has a lot to do with labor supply um, and that is tied into cost of living and the local economy. For example, in a city, if you have like a very high traffic area, which you brought up, um, these areas are, in the economic sense, they're going to be more product productive because the worker is going to see more people. And so like, it makes sense for them to receive a higher wage. And you, you do see that in like big but cities. Even in a rural blue area, as opposed to a city red area, a person in the blue area might sell far fewer products because there are fewer people in the area than a person who makes less money but sells more products at the same price to a greater number of people in the red area. Yeah, and so part of that is because of competition between businesses. So like, if you have, say someone produces like, we'll, we'll use like widgets, right? So say someone produces 10 widgets per hour, right? And there's only one business which is hiring widget producers. Um, because they're the only like widget producer, they can like get away with you know, paying less because um, they have like this monopsony power, right? But if you have multiple businesses, say like two widget producing businesses that are next to each other, um, what they're willing to do is they're willing to pay up to the price of 10 widgets per hour for the employee and, you know, move those workers that would work for their competitor over to them. And so, if you have like lots of businesses that are together and they're competing in this way, they're going to be willing to pay more for these widget producing laborers. Um, and that's because of like the relative ratio of widget producing companies to labor supply. And so when you talk about like 
something like Starbucks, right? Where like potentially there's a lot of labor supply. Um, and you look at like an area where there are businesses which are hiring and they got to sort of compete for the same labor pool of people. They're going to be willing to potentially pay more up to the productivity level. But this um, doesn't happen. People it does pay... happen though. No, it do... wait, people get paid minimum wage in big cities. I worked in LA. People get paid minimum wage in LA, even though there's an enormous like competition between all these businesses. It can happen sometimes, but like the the issue is my only argument here is that like on an individual level, productivity is not a great determiner for um what like what a person is paid. But if your argument is that competition will drive potential like pay up, um, then why are rural underserved franchises in blue states with a higher minimum wage paying people more? than highly productive franchises in red states that have a lower minimum wage. The, the only point I'm making is that there are a ton of factors that contribute to what like pay workers get that have nothing to do with productivity at all, that it has to do with other factors like cost of living or um, like the law, like legally, because I think all these businesses would be paying us like bottles full of piss if they could get away with it. If you get the minimum wage higher, then people will be paid higher amounts, even if there's no change to their productivity. And it's impossible to measure productivity anyway in any like cross-disciplinary respect. How do you measure the productivity of a barista, a service worker, next to an Amazon warehouse fulfillment employee? What percentage of the worth of every delivery could be attributed to the productivity of the worker who delivers it? Is it all of it? Because without them, it wouldn't have made it there. There would have been no point to the entire enterprise. It's not really, there's just, there's no way. It's just not, at, at the end of the day, like this is precisely the reason why um, the, the whole, Oh, the entirety of economics, um, the line between prescriptive and descriptive, I think, gets really, really, really muddied and really dumb. I just think we should fight for higher wages. We should fixate on that because trying to work out like the precise mathematical equation to determine, you know, why things are the way they are. It always feels very econ 101, you know, like if we, you know, if every cow is a frictionless sphere, what are people's wages going to be? That kind of thing. You know, what does that give us? Yeah. So, I mean, there may be like a point to this, like very abstract way of having the conversation um, because like I, I haven't looked into like these studies between these, these companies, but you ask like, why are these um, blue state rural companies paying more than red state rural companies? And the point that I was trying to make earlier is because these workers have like a value of how much they're producing and in low competition environments, so like a rural environment where there's not a lot of businesses, um, you can potentially get away with paying a lot lower for those wages. And so like the reason why so you're able wage. to, yeah, so the reason why you're able to like set minimum wages higher in like a blue state and have those apply like even to rural companies is because the workers are um, they are producing more productivity and that isn't tracking on because that isn't tracking to wages in the red states uh, because there isn't a lot of competition. And so the government is basically stepping in and they're raising like the minimum wage or they're raising like the wages of these workers closer to what their actual productivity is. That, so, Oh, sorry. I just want to say I half agree with you there. Yeah. The minimum yeah. wages are set higher in states that have higher average wealth. But then we're taking a look at like 
states with millions of people in them, not individual analyses where this, where the whole function breaks down. But if we're looking at why California has a higher minimum wage than Alabama does, I agree. California has way more money moving around. So it would make sense then that they would feel comfortable setting that higher. And that is due to the economic productivity of the state, but not of the individual workers within it, because that minimum wage hike will apply no matter how productive any worker who benefits from it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess like the point that I'm trying to make is that you have environments, if there's like very low competition, for example, like monopsony power of, or, or like some degree of, of great, like, um, company power to negotiate wages, which you have in some rural areas, then yeah, I think that you'll especially expect, um, wages to not track to productivity and, so the reason I think why that seems like agreeable to you is because I'm like extending an olive branch of like explaining why this uh, disconnect between wages and compensation might exist. No, no. Yeah, well, I agree. I'm not. My only argument is that it doesn't work that well as a, a person to person determiner. And there are tons of other factors that go into it. You know, um, the problem with assigning it exclusively to productivity is that it doesn't leave us much room for prescriptive judgment afterwards. If it's like, well, these people, this area makes more because they do more and this area makes less because they do less. Well, you know, okay, fine. But how do we, how do we get at that? And I think there are a number of ways you can get at that with policy, um, with reinvestment and stuff, which, um, target the problems a little bit more specifically. And I, of course, I also want to dispel any myth of meritocracy, um, which I don't believe exists uh, in any meaningful function in this in this country. Um, so I think it's important to dispel of that. Uh, I think that should be like a, a consistent political goal to be pushed for. Why don't you think we have meritocracy? Um, I think it's pretty apparent that when you look at people in power, let's say politics, for example, uh, they're generally pretty mediocre people in the sense that they're morally and sometimes like intellectually kind of bankrupt. Uh, a lot of them just came from wealth, um, which gives them the ability to sort of form the connections and get the educational and business acumen necessary to like push their way into power. I feel the same way about a lot of people in power, just in general. Um, you know, people, people who are good at sweeping the floors don't get promoted to manager. They get kept sweeping the floors because that's what they're good at. Uh, I don't think um, there's a very strong incentive to push the most competent people in society up to the top. The only time I feel like that was the case was back during the Revolutionary War. I think that warfare, violence, and revolution are effective mediums through which exceptional people can be found. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Founding Fathers were all big brain geniuses, at least relative to like the average like aristocrat of their day. You know, those are the people who distinguish themselves in very dire circumstances. You see this often in like uh, revolutionary times during like, uh, you know, the USSR or whatever. Whatever you may think of the positions or morals of many revolutionary leaders, they are nothing if not exceptional. But here in America today, you know, most like leaders, both business and political, are bloviating dumbasses uh, who are clearly like more concerned with personal accreditation, book deals, and fucking underage prostitutes than they are with like anything they're supposed to be elected to do. So if you were to have like a company that did operate on murdercratic principles and you know, elevated people to positions of power based truly on, you know, their ability to contribute to the company rather than external factors. Do you think that company would succeed in the market against companies that weren't doing that? 
I don't think any such company could exist because we don't have a meritocratic society from which to pull employees. Um, you can't say we live in a meritocracy when massive differences in wealth, educational accessibility, stuff like that, affect the, uh, you know, the abilities of workers. Oh wait, I'm hearing a fan from your mic. Sorry. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can point out that like the ability of people to uh, get into like high paying or like get into good schools, get education and whatnot is, for example, it's like highly dependent on zip code. So like if you are a brilliant person, but again, you're born into a neighborhood that like is stricken by like continual crime and businesses don't want to like set up there and it's really hard to get a job and it's really hard to save money and to go to school and whatnot. Even if you're brilliant, very skilled, you might not necessarily have that recognized. You might not be able to, you know, generate a lot of wealth for yourself. I think we can acknowledge that, but I think we can also say that to the extent that there are people that have varying levels of skills. So like someone um, who is born into like a decent, you know, into a decent zip code and they're able to get those educational opportunities, that person, um, when they when they enter a company, that company is going to benefit from promoting them up to the ladder to the point where they're able to contribute as much as they're capable of. Um, possibly. Even if that was the case, that's not really a meritocracy because we're pre-selecting for people who have benefited from the dice roll of early life. But even under those circumstances, like I said, janitors who sweep the best aren't promoted to manager. Um, if a person's really, really good at being a desk jockey, no matter how talented they might be at higher-ups, it's not like corporations are known for taking bold risks and promoting managers from within. Like, that doesn't really happen that much. Um, you know, you have consultants and managers brought over from other firms for a variety of reasons. I'm generalizing, of course. I'm talking about the entirety of corporate culture in the U.S., so there are going to be exceptions in every direction, but... Um, the idea that, like, everyone's promoted to their point of maximum efficiency is just, like... I don't think that I I don't think that's true at all because like in order for that to in order to even try that you have to experiment you don't know who's going to be good in a management position you don't know who would succeed most there um, with minimal oversight and very few slots for promotion the likelihood of any given you know exceptional person being given the opportunity to demonstrate that not to mention office politics you know people might not like overperformers because it makes their adjacent departments look bad I just I think uh, a life is a lot of luck, and generally speaking, you'll do better if you try hard than if you don't. But a meritocracy, we are not. I think we're very, very far away from that. If, if a janitor is incredible at sweeping the floors, that doesn't necessarily mean they have like the merit to become a manager. So I think even in your example, like this person is very skilled at sweeping floors but isn't promoted to managerial position. I don't think that's an argument against the existence of a meritocracy. If anything, it but seems like you know? the meritocracy is functioning in that case because you're not promoting someone who has not shown a, you know, capability for managerial position. That He's right there is my point exactly. You can't <laughs> know. You assume because the proletarian functions well at their current role that they must be designed for it. But you have no idea whether that work effort or drive they demonstrate for sweeping would be applicable in a higher field. And we can never know. As long as we live in a system like this, an autocratic economic system, there's absolutely no way to reasonably ensure 
that people's skills are best demonstrated in these firms. Yeah. So the way that you like end up doing these hirings is to look at their education attainment, their prior work history and whatnot. And if someone has worked in a managerial role and can demonstrate success in that role, their ability to get hired in another managerial role, I think you would agree is increased by that, right? Well, that's my point exactly. That's the snowball rolling down the hill. People get managerial positions because they've had managerial positions. This is why companies don't promote from within. They get somebody else who's worked as a manager in another department or sometimes from another company or they hire a consultant. Um, so this person who has like those proven managerial skills is experience. getting hired. Right. Um, and obviously, like if they were the previous manager and they like tanked their position, right, um, they're less likely to get hired than if they did a really good job and could demonstrate that. Everyone's had incompetent managers. Uh, I think it's I think it's shockingly common to find firms being run by people who know less about the firm than the people who work for the person who runs the firm. Um, I think that happens pretty often. We've all read Dilbert, haven't we? Um, the um, but, but yeah, like this is the thing you can't know. The the interesting thing is your logic right there is exactly the anti meritocratic logic I'm pointing out. The criteria you're using to determine whether a person should be a manager is nothing more than if they've been one before and done a fine job, sure. But that's not a recognition of people's skills. That's just inertia. People who were managers can now be managers and continue to be managers. Meanwhile, are there more people, competent people in that department who could be promoted up? Well, who knows? They do good in their position and they haven't shown the talents of a manager because they've been, never been given the chance to, so they'll never get to know. There's no way a system such as this can be considered meritocratic. It's once you have some luck, you keep getting luck unless you fuck something up on average, of course, not for all people all the time. So maybe we're using meritocratic in different ways. When I say a system is meritocratic, what I mean is that like ability to demonstrate skills allows you to move up in positions. And so I would say like if you're able to demonstrate a managerial skill, that increases your chance of receiving a managerial position. And I would say that like demonstration of skill translating to promotion is an example of meritocracy. I would, where I'd agree with you is that like access to getting those skills in the first place is not equal across society. So I would say that like, if you grow up again in a zip code that doesn't allow you to generate those skills in the first place, even if you would be a brilliant manager, there's just no way of people to know that even perhaps for you to know that you'd be an incredible manager if you're never like getting the opportunity to do it. And so I think that we can like agree maybe on that, but then I would say that like, once you have demonstrated skills, the ability to like demonstrate skills does translate to changes in position. There is uh, definitely a correlation, but not a strong enough one for me to be, um, you know, you can alter the outcome of a game of pachinko depending on where you put the, uh, you know, you, you shunt the ball through, but I don't think it's any more than a luck game there. It's always important to try your best, of course, but, you know, if you're a very hard worker at a given position, you may never be given the opportunity to demonstrate that you're managerial material. You know, they're not overlapping skills necessarily. It can't really be found out. Then there's workplace discrimination, of course, you know, uh, people of color get passed up for promotion way more often than white people do, men more so than women, cis people more than trans people, uh, 
and um, tall people, tall people more than short people. That's a big one, actually, for men on who gets um, put forward. So those are pretty statistically significant elements of discrimination, even when you level out like skill as a factor, you know, position or experience or whatever. Um, yeah, it's just uh, the, the world is a, is a terribly unfair place. I'm reminded of a quote um, of a, um, I don't know if it was a neuroscientist, but um, they said something in an interview, something along the lines of people are always asking me, you know, what do we know about the brain of Einstein? Because Einstein had just died, I think, you know. Um, and I say to them, you know, somehow I am far less interested in the brain of the world's smartest man uh, than I am in the knowledge uh, that there is, without a doubt, a person equally intelligent who lived and died on a field somewhere in Sudan or something like that. Um, I'm probably butchering that quote somewhat, but I think the sentiment there is, is, is very, very poignant. Um, and that's what I tend to believe. Uh, I, I just, I don't care for any of these so-called leaders. Uh, I, I know there are very competent people who aren't in those positions who should be. So I would rather fi fixate on that. Till that happens, it can't be a meritocracy. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, because I, I tend to agree on like some level. I'm very much a fan of meritocracy. And I think that most people ought to be, if they're like reasonable people, um, and they just want to like produce the most for a society. You want to have those Einsteins that are, you know, born in impoverished countries to demonstrate their skills, to have the opportunity to. And I think that like within a company, um, I think you'd agree that like a company has an incentive to make sure that its employees are allowed to be as productive as they can be. And so like, if you have hidden talent um, within, you know, the, janitor the janitorial people, um, a company would want to see that if possible and promote people up the ladder. And really, when I'm thinking about a meritocracy, I'm thinking that the incentives in a society are such that the powers that be want to find people who are successful and skilled and they want to promote them up the ladder. And there may be barriers to that. There are always barriers to that. But I think as long as the incentives are there um, and the barriers are, you know, aren't such that it never happens. I think that that's how you sort of measure the relative degree of meritocracy. It's about the incentive. If, if the incentive mattered, there wouldn't have been all those biases with race and gender and height. If incentive mattered, there wouldn't have been any racism in the 50s or, you know, signs saying no blacks allowed because it would have been more profitable to let them in as customers. Always there's an incentive, but we're not rational. Um, and we're also not omniscient. Um, and we would need to be both of those things for the incentive to be a, an you know, accurate determiner of how good a meritocracy we have. Don't get me wrong, I love the idea of a meritocracy. The reason I believe it doesn't exist now is because I love the idea of a meritocracy. I wouldn't be this concerned with gatekeeping its definition if I didn't believe we could do better. Yeah, I mean, if you wanna hear some like real wacky things, um, I would say that there's like an active bias against people who have more conservative leanings, especially in academia and entering the professional world. That's good. If you're, if you're someone who like um, is more right-wing, you have like a strong incentive to hide that. And it's because companies, you know, not only are they hiring on skills, but they're also hiring on like 
a person's ability to fit into the progressive milieu and hold certain progressive ideas. And I think that would be an example of people who don't necessarily fall in line with the progressive mainstream are not going to be included in companies, regardless of their skills. Well, that's fine. I mean, I think it's okay in, in a meritocratic sense, it's okay to discriminate against somebody who demonstrates a lack of skill. I think a lack of ethical acumen would be another fair candidate for discrimination. Um, so to be clear, I'm talking about people who might be able to generate the company like a degree of value, a high degree of value, but are passed over for the position because they don't hold the same progressive ideas that the company does, even if that doesn't actually affect their economic output. Um, that would be an example of like very much not a meritocracy, which it sounds like you would agree with is like a good thing. And I would say that like in a capitalist economic framework, uh, sometimes the thing that like produces the most money is a heroin den or a social media platform, which gets people terribly addicted and doesn't benefit their lives. Sometimes that's the economically beneficial thing to do. And just hiring people based on their ability to achieve that is not what's going to create the best thing for society. And in that case, you might want to select employees for something other than economic productivity and instead maybe for something like self-sacrificing ability. I think that you could have environments where that's the case. Um, but I think that like you would say that there are some circumstances in which economic productivity, their skill is not what you want even companies or society to elevate people to positions of power over, right? Well, certainly. I mean, I'm, I'm a socialist. I wouldn't want that to be the sole determiner. Um, right now it is, you know, making your shareholders back as much money as they can. Um, but obviously, you know, wait, 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 you would say that's the main determiner. Is right now, that is the, money. that is what determines what companies hire. Yeah. Obviously there are biases, um, within like any company that's going to influence that, but that's the thing they're pursued towards. That's the incentive structure is to make the money back. Um, of course I'm not fond of that. You know, I'd be much happier with some regimented, a uh, system of government oversights that introduced a number of incentives that are not profit-driven. I think that would be lovely, um, but that's not the world that we live in right now. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we're just like sp continually speaking past each other because that's what I think of when I think of meritocracy. And I'm not even, I'm not saying that that's necessarily like the best thing ever to have this like pure skill-based selection for people entering into companies. But I would say that like, when I talk about meritocracy, what I mean is that people are being hired and promoted based on their ability to deliver value for the company, right? Their skill is reflected in where they move in the company and their compensation. And that is determined by their ability to return money to the shareholders. That's absolutely not meritocratic. What if you had a racist society and you decided to only hire, um, white frontmen for your business um, so that the racist clientele in that area wouldn't be put off by having a black employee there and you didn't hire black employees because you knew they would generate less profit because they would disincentivize racist white people from attending the store that decision would produce the greatest profits for the company but i'm not interested in corporate profits as the measure of meritocracy that's insane to me it would be the level of availability and access from everyone to whatever it is they need in society. 
whether that be a job or access to resources? Yeah. So when I talk about meritocracy, what I mean is that like their skills are being reflected in their compensation. And so like you can have this in a sense in a racist society, but the other side of that coin is you have like a lot of black people. Um, I think that was like black people is the example that you were giving who are systematically denied ability to even demonstrate their skills. And so even if like racist clerks are generating profit for a specific store, you've got this section of society that is unable to generate, you know, the value that they're actually capable of producing. And therefore you'd measure the society as like not meritocratic because these, you know, a significant portion of the society isn't able to, you know, do as much as they are capable of. Like the janitor. Yeah. And so I would say that like in our, in our current society, if like a janitor is able to, you know, have great managerial skill, companies have a lot of incentive to discover that and to promote that person up. I don't think that happens. Yeah. I don't think that happens very often because companies have decided that like the chance of a janitor having significant managerial skill is low enough that they don't want to like actively seek that out. So they're waiting for the janitor to demonstrate that in some way, either by going and getting education or, you know, proving through some other means that they have that skill. Um, so I think they're doing that calculus, but they are doing the calculus because Ideally, they do want to make as much money as possible. You place way too much stock in the effectiveness of these incentives. If these incentives were relevant, we wouldn't have massive biases in who receives how much pay or who gets to the the top of any given field or industry. The people who make these hiring decisions are not brain geniuses. They're quaalude, choking, cocaine-snorting pedophiles. Uh, they are not looking over the janitor and thinking, you know, how can we psychiatrically analyze this person to make sure they have the managerial skills necessary? This just doesn't happen. People hire from outside the company or they promote people they know the best or people who will stir the boat the least, you know. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, a meritocracy is when everyone is given the greatest possible ability to shine. And in a world where if you take a look across California, you'll find millions and millions of people making the exact minimum wage and no more. My belief that every single one of them deserves that amount and none of them deserve something greater is just, it's, it's unsustainable. I cannot believe such a thing. Um, so yeah, I just, if we want to improve our meritocracy, we have to acknowledge its faults on a systemic level, socially, making sure people have access to the resources they need in order to be able to, you know, uh, express themselves and actualize their abilities and within any other institution, which is one of the reasons why I'm a favor of worker co-ops, because I think democracies are a relatively effective venue for allowing people to shine in that sense. Interesting. I think this conversation is very weird for me because I feel like we essentially agree on a lot of things, but are like using language in very different ways. Cause like, I also want people to be able to demonstrate, you know, the value and capability that they have. Um, I don't want, you know, to lose Einstein's to bad economic conditions. But I would say like, that is like a legitimate point where we can be like, 
the world could be better at finding selecting people who are highly skilled and promoting them. And I would say that like the fact that companies have companies are self-interested and they want to generate profit and their ability to generate profit allows them to push out other companies that have other goals. So if you have a company that is very moral, you know, goals, those goals, whatever the ethics they may be, are going to get pushed out from the market by companies that don't have those goals. And if a company has like the goal of hiring people only who are six foot plus, they're going to have a hard time in whatever industry they are in compared to a company that doesn't necessarily have that. And so the degree to which you have like these biases. What if they just selectively promote tall people? Yeah. Again, it's like if you are having a company that has this like goal that is external to profit, that is going to impede on the company's ability to compete with any company that doesn't have that external goal. Those companies are on the S&P 500. Those studies that I referred to about incorporate bias weren't being done at like mom and pop shops. These are being done at the most powerful financial institutions on the planet. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Clearly these biases, you can go back to the 1950s when it was legal to not hire black people or, you know, like just say not to. Plenty of very powerful corporations just didn't. Clearly it didn't affect them that much. You know, clearly the more rational corporation didn't jump in and compete them out of business with their less discriminatory hiring practices. I disagree. Absolutely. I, I disagree so much. I mean, like if you look at like companies today, um, they're, they tend to be very interested, especially big companies like the ones that you're talking about in reducing as much as possible this bias. Like they're very, if you, you know, get hired at one of these big companies, um, my girlfriend recently got hired at a company that's, you know, fairly big and a lot of like the onboarding process is like specifically targeted to make sure that any biases um, are being corrected for. Again, because like these companies are self-interested. You and keep speaking maybe- of incentive, but it's just irrelevant to me. Like businesses have been incentivized to make the most money for as long as they've existed. Kingdoms were incentivized to prolong the rule of their kings for as long as they could. Magnates, uh, uh, you know, trade companies, all of these incentives, and yet what happens? War and death and plague and fire and discrimination. The the idea that, it, what incentive well, what was there for the Holocaust? what happens is less discrimination over, the t- over time because- That I agree with, but we still have it, enough of it that I can't consider this a meritocracy. Okay. Yeah. Maybe like you don't draw like the meritocracy line now, but I think that like we have to like fundamentally agree that like there's a push towards working this bias out because the bias is inefficient. There is a push towards resolving some types of biases like appearance biases, demographic biases in hiring in corporations. There isn't a push to fix the bias within accessibility to income and education and what have you on the ground level. We have record levels of income inequality, and there isn't a push to fundamentally restructure the unfairness of our existing economic system. I just want to ask something, because I do have to end soon. I didn't expect this to go for so long. Yeah, sorry. No, no, not at all. If you had a mega factory, you know, just some huge factory, I don't know, a sweatshop, with 10,000 workers, and the only three things you could be in that factory are workers, uh, you know, um, uh, managers, and then the owner. 
and there are three managers and an owner. So there are four people in executive positions and 9,900, 9, you know, whatever. Basically, everyone is a worker and there are very few people on top. If such a factory existed and through omniscience, through, through, through genius and omniscience and pure profit-driven motive, the best people from the worker pool were pulled into the management and the owner positions. So the, the four out of the 10,000, the best of them always, were put to the positions appropriate for their skills. Would you consider such a system to be a meritocracy? I would consider that company's policy to be meritocratic. And I think that maybe the point that you're making is that even if companies have within themselves a meritocratic policy, the broader society, which allows people to enter into that company in the first place, might itself not have a high degree of meritocracy. Absolutely, yes. And there would be such variance amidst the workers that any perception of meritocracy would be irrelevant. You would have tremendous variance in skills and abilities of all the workers on the ground level and no way of differentiating them or putting them in places that they would be more comfortable because the structure itself is broken. I feel the same way about corporations. They have a pyramid structure, top down, small at the top and large at the bottom. And without a democracy, that is such a system. One in which no matter, even if somehow you could guarantee the best people are in management positions, that doesn't change the fact that there is a tremendous pool of very different people with no will to express at the bottom being treated the same. Uh, and I don't consider that meritocratic either. Yeah, okay. So I think maybe that we can end on like a point of common ground. I would say the extent to which, you know, a broader society doesn't allow potentially skilled people to enter into businesses in which they are rewarded for their skills. You know, that is to the extent that a society is not meritocratic. And I think that like, I'm also very critical of the existence of meritocracy in the United States, but I would also acknowledge personally that the United States, historically speaking, is much more meritocratic than many other societies, like, you know, feudal Europe, um, or, you know, going back further, a lot of these kingdoms are very not meritocratic, and they basically rule through aristocracy and royal bloodline. And even dictatorships today, which don't have an incentive to educate their people because they want to just like continually exploit them for as much profit as they can. Um, and educating them at all would be a threat to their political stability. I think that you have to compare the United States to much of human history and say that relatively speaking, it's more meritocratic. Well, sure. I don't disagree with that. You set the bar kind of low though. I still wouldn't consider it a meritocracy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I think we agree on like so much of it, but I think maybe we're just describing things a little bit differently. And we certainly have the bars in different places. All the same, I did enjoy the conversation. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely fun. I think you're very fun to talk to because you disagree with me and it's fun to talk to people who disagree with you, but are polite about it and are capable of engaging in long form conversation. I don't often get polite conversations, but I do like disagreeing. Uh, thank you. I have to run uh, and go do some errands really quick before they close. Have a wonderful day. You as well. Have a wonderful day, Bosh.
Bye.